This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su-An. On the show with me today is Lillian Fan, Chair of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network's Rohingya Working Group. She's also the co-founder and international director of the Catania Foundation, which works with refugees and marginalised groups. She's joining me today to discuss reports that have emerged of Rohingya refugees left stranded on a boat out at sea. And um, before the break, you know, um, Lillian was sharing a bit about the um, conditions on the boat on based on what she's heard from relatives of passengers who are on the boat there are concerns that they've run out of food that their engine has broken down and that there are already deaths um, that have happened among this particular group now in this case Lillian both Malaysia and Thailand have been called upon by activists and organizations like yourself like Amnesty International Malaysia to conduct a search and rescue mission but what responsibilities do neighboring countries like us have when it comes to such situations and this is taking, and, and I'm also taking into account that both Malaysia and Thailand are not signatories to the UN Refugee Convention. And unfortunately, both Malaysia and Thailand have had a history of pushing back boats. What responsibilities do we have in a situation like this? Uh, yes, yeah, so I think that we need to look also beyond the Refugee Convention. So I think if we look at um, you know the international law of the sea, uh, there is actually an obligation to rescue and assist boats that are in distress, no matter who those passengers are. And I think we need to be applying um, these laws, actually, and the obligation to um, at least conduct rescue, a uh, rescue mission, identify where people um, uh, are and try to assist them. The difficulty, of course, is I think with these um, uh, our regional governments is that nobody wants to disembark this boat. Um, you know, we are all very concerned, I think, at the uh, national level um, in our countries because Malaysian government, as you said, uh, rightly hasn't signed the Refugee Convention. We mm-hmm. don't even have a domestic framework that actually allows for, um, you know, status determination or recognition of refugees legally yet. We're, mm-hmm. we're hoping that this is going to um, be something that we could see be formulated uh, during this um, this government, but that's not a, a process that is going to, you know, happen overnight. It's something which takes a lot of deliberation um, for it to be a sustainable policy um, as well that is supported by um, uh, by all stakeholders. So that's a long-term, um, or medium-term rather, uh, step that needs to be taken. Um, but uh, in the absence of that, you know, we do think that it's still important now, even without having those frameworks in place for the countries and the region, especially, you know, right now, the, the latest coordinates that we had for the boat um, over the weekend were, uh, it was actually in the middle of the Andaman Sea, in Malaysian search and rescue waters, mm-hmm. sorry, region, the uh, Malaysian search and rescue region, not in Malaysian waters, not in the territorial waters. Um, and that region was actually quite close also to the Indian uh, search and rescue region and the Myanmar search and rescue region. And of course, um, further to the east, the Thai search and rescue region. So actually what you need is um, joint coordinated operations for search and rescue. Um, and really what the region needs is to um, come to some regional agreements of identifying safe disembarkation locations and procedures of how you actually manage these types of situations. We did have, in fact, some agreements um, at the regional level that took place uh, after the Underman Sea crisis, mm-hmm. um, but none of those mechanisms have been activated. So there's something called the Bali process, um, and that is, uh, you know, the Bali process um, was actually a mechanism 
and it's a forum uh, from for many governments in the region, not just ASEAN, but actually beyond ASEAN uh, as well, to uh, collaborate and coordinate on efforts um, basically against smuggling and trafficking. And in that mechanism, there was basically an agreement to um, develop a kind of procedure in, in, in the event that uh, this sort of emergency at sea would happen and that there could be um, a consultation process that could, have, could be activated uh, amongst these countries to um, basically formulate a quick response. That mechanism hasn't been activated. And this is we've seen this over and over again uh, for a couple of years, that when a crisis of this scale does emerge, countries haven't used that mm -hmm. mechanism. So we would like to urge, number one, for the existing mechanisms to be used. Number two, for however the countries feel that it's more appropriate, you know, but really do um, bring uh, this issue into a regional discussion where we're really um, discussing roles and responsibilities across countries, because of course, no one country wants to um, be fully responsible uh, uh, for this. And it is difficult when we don't have the frameworks, but again, I think we can't um, let countries off the hook either for basically not abiding to very basic international law. Um, and this is why we're really calling for search and rescue to be conducted, not just because people um, on the boat are Rohingya refugees. Uh, that's an added reason to be concerned because of the level of vulnerability. But imagine if this were a boat carrying citizens of a country, people who were actually citizens of a country, you know, recognized citizens, there would be a massive international um, search and rescue mission. So I think we really need to um, ensure that international customary law is um, adhered to without discrimination. So that's really one of the things that is, is extremely important um, in the way that we are approaching this, these types of crises in the region. Mm. Lillian, you mentioned safe disemb disembarkation. Is that sort of referring to the need to provide them with a safe haven instead of de um, detaining them, which is um, quite often the case when it comes to rescuing refugees from, um, from boats? Uh, so there are different approaches in the region actually. And in Malaysia, because we don't have a legal framework that actually allows for um, the protection of refugees and puts that into, into law, um, our response has been to basically use the Immigration Act mm -hmm. to process people. So whether people are arriving, you know, claiming some kind of asylum or not, we don't have those mechanisms yet. We don't have um, a way to actually process, screen um, you know, do identification of who is in need of protection and who is not. So we really do need to develop those protections. But until we have those mechanisms, um, we are basically using the Immigration Act. And that means that um, people who are extremely vulnerable, who have been, um, you know, number one, survivors of genocide, number two, survivors of, um, you know, these uh, smuggling and trafficking uh, journeys, um, and a lot of violence along, uh, you know, along the way from inside Myanmar to Bangladesh uh, to the sea journey itself are not being treated with the types of um, concern and protection that they need. Instead, we're actually criminalizing criminalizing them rather than you know only really criminalizing the genocidaires as well as the um, you know the traffickers uh, who are responsible for uh, you know luring people into this type of dangerous journeys as well. Um, so I think we really need to be much better at that. Um, but it's not the only type of response we're seeing in the region. I mean, I think we need to look next door to Indonesia mm -hmm. as well, where Indonesia also hasn't signed the Refugee Convention and uh, doesn't have a comprehensive uh, national law on refugees. But what they have done is they have um, issued a presidential regulation 
and this is back in 2016, which is presidential regulation um, number 125, 2016. And this is um, a regulation which actually allows for uh, safe disembarkation of refugee boats uh, that are in distress. Um, and it uses the definition of refugees, which is found in the Refugee Convention. So even not having signed the convention, they're still using that same definition. You know, we're not, they're not making up their own definition of who is a refugee, which is really important as well, because there, um, there is international law behind this. Um, and they are basically uh, conducting coordination between government agencies uh, in Indonesia, from the national level to the subnational level, as well as coordination with the United Nations, with UNHCR and IOM in particular, um, and with um, civil society, humanitarian, um, local humanitarian organizations who are responding as well. And that is um, now, um, you know, a mechanism which uh, Indonesia has been developing. It still uh, has, um, you know, to be developed more. Um, it's not a, a perfect kind of solution, but I think it, it points to an alternative type of approach. Um, they've also gotten rid of detention, mm -hmm. um, you know, of uh, uh, refugees, particularly children. So they don't detain um uh, you know, children. And in fact, they actually tend to put people into community shelters. So it's not really a form of detention. They don't give um, absolute, you know, uh, freedom of movement either. And there are still lots of um, a long way to go when it comes to access to um, livelihoods, uh, for example, and um, of course, education. But in principle, um, you know, they're really trying to work on some of these issues. And I think that it is um, a good example for us to, to look at in the region. Similarly, Thailand, um, actually has a screening mechanism um, as well for particularly for victims of trafficking, but it can also be applied to refugees. And that's something as well, which we could learn from our other neighbor from Thailand um, to look at developing our own screening mechanisms, which, mechanisms which could help us to identify persons who are in need of protection. Hmm. Lillian, this is a field that you're very familiar with. From your experience working with refugees and in this field, why is this such, still such a contentious issue for um, quite a lot of Southeast Asian governments when we do have a significant portion of society who understand why the, why the, the Rohingya people are fleeing Myanmar when we have quite a strong network of civil society organisations who are advocating for this issue? Why, why do we still struggle to properly address this? Um, I would say that in Malaysia, there are a few concerns and, we, and we've heard this from the government um, as well. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there are, I think, increasing views as well that um, refugees do need to be given more rights. So I would give that to the government. We've heard from all sides, actually, and, you know, in a very bipartisan kind of way, um, support uh, for, you know, in increasing basic rights for refugees. So that is something which is important to note. Um, however, I think a lot of the fear is basically coming from, um, number one, a fear that we will become a pull factor. That is, uh, you know, the kind of overriding fear that um, the Malaysian government has. And I think that this is something which we really need to be um, working to um, address uh, with the Malaysian government because, you know, the reality is that um, for refugees, it's really not a pull factor so much as it is a push factor. Mm -hmm. It's always a push factor. And I think we should be able to see this from, um, you know, from, from several things. I mean, number one, uh, we're a country which uh, actually, you know, we've given a lot of solidarity support to Palestine, for example. Um, you know, we um, are a country that uh, doesn't require, you know, where uh, many Muslim countries don't require visas. Um, and yet, in fact, uh, you know, the numbers of refugees 
here in Malaysia, I would say, you know, we try to, I think we sometimes blow it out of proportion, but in fact, it's really not that large. Mm. You know, the number of registered refugees is uh, slightly less than 200,000. Uh, there are, of course, unregistered refugees as well, but it's not as if, you know, we're really, um, you know, uh, having these sort of massive influxes of, of refugees from um, any of these conflict regions. Uh, in fact, I mean, of course, our largest population is from Myanmar, but even then, um, you know, it's not really like people are coming here with a completely unmanageable, at a completely unmanageable scale. Mm-hmm. So if we did have some frameworks in place, and of course, if we put that screening mechanism in place, that is really what allows you to identify persons who genuinely are in need of protection from those who are not, who um, you know may have um, a much lesser degree of protection needs and could be considered an economic migrant. For example, those are important distinctions to make. Um, and by all means, the government, of course, um, does need to um, be able to make those distinctions, but um, there are tools that they could be using for that. So I think, um, you know, being able to have those conversations with government to address really what their fears are and actually help them find um, solutions to that, help them find ways of um, addressing some of those fears and putting in place, uh, you know, mechanisms that can that can help to reduce that and at the same time uh, allow us to be kinder, uh, more humane, um, and, uh, you know, a place where um, refugees who are, are fleeing persecution um, from many countries in the region, actually, and, and across the world, um, do actually have some basic rights. Mm. Do you see a role for the government to play when it comes to messaging to the public? Because that's always a main challenge for us when it comes to talking about refugees and refugee rights in Malaysia. We inevitably get xenophobic, xenophobic comments from the public, right? Is that something that you, can, that you see greater top-down messaging for? Yes, I, th- I definitely do. I think it's really important that the government, um, you know, is quite clear and, you know, doesn't sort of um, contribute to fears um, and politicians shouldn't, you know, be contributing to those fears as well. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, stoking up fears and sort of painting refugees as a threat somehow, I really do hope that we are starting to look at, um, uh, you know, uh, these communities as persons, number one, who are vulnerable, who need protection, but also number two, who can actually contribute, you know, in the temporary periods in which they are here seeking our protection, there are ways that we can um, support them to be some more self-reliant and also ways that we can encourage them to um, be empowered to contribute back to society. And that's really what refugees want uh, as well. Um, so, I mean, there've been a few encouraging signs. Uh, I think just yesterday, you know, we had the Human Rights Forum mm-hmm. by the government and there were some good statements that were made. Our foreign minister, made a statement that um, Palestine and the Rohingya issue will be still very high on the agenda. Uh, That points to, of course, um, you know, that our foreign policy will be quite consistent with foreign policy um, of the past, which has taken these issues up um, at an international level. And that is very important because ultimately you need to be solving the crises. You know, the the problem with um, the refugee problem is not a problem of refugees. It's a problem of conflict and Mm -hmm. war. Um, And that's actually what you need to be solving at the international scale. So we do need to be playing our role. Um, in ensuring that we are really addressing those issues and really pushing hard um, uh, to uh, find resolutions to those problems. Um, and then number two, you know, we had the, the royal address yesterday uh, by Trump Mufiz, um at the forum also, what also pointed to the need to review um, our approach to refugee education and grant refugees more access to education um, and, and also called for greater um, cooperation between the government and uh, civil society organizations who have so far been providing these services and filling those gaps. And that was a 
a very welcome call. Um, and I think we need to see more of this, you know, leaders and rulers of the country um, really, you know, setting the tone and um, ensuring that we are being inclusive. And when we're talking, of course, about, you know, um, supporting um, Malaysia uh, and, you know, trying to address the uh, inequities in Malaysia and looking at um, how we can basically, you know, make life more sustainable for everyone, we need to be doing this in an inclusive way. And that includes all groups who are vulnerable and marginalized, including refugees. So it has to become part of our conversations on inclusiveness and on how we're going forward as a country. Hmm. Have you heard back from the government, um, from the relevant ministries when it comes to, in, with this, in, in, with reference to this particular case of the boat um, adrift at sea? We have actually. I mean, the government has been um, res- you know, quite responsive, um, at least in terms of, you know, uh, uh, getting back to us and telling us what they're hearing as well, the fact mm-hmm. that they, they were um, cooperating uh, with the Thais. And um, part of the reason that, you know, we didn't sort of launch into um, a search and rescue uh, mission immediately was also because uh, we were told by the Thai government that the, that the Thais would be um, looking for the boat as well. Uh, we did hear since then that the Thais did try to find the boat but didn't find the boat. Mm-hmm. So that was, of course, a concern, and we informed the government of that too. So they have been communicative. I mean, of course, you know, we um, realize that the government also has its limitations in in what it's allowed to do. Um, the MMEA also um, has been responding and they made a statement, which actually was correct. They stated that there are no Rohingya boats in our territory. It's That's actually correct, but it doesn't contradict the fact that the boat was actually in Malaysian Saar region, which is different from our territorial waters. And of course, the MMEA's um, territory and mandate is, is within the territorial waters much closer to the coast. Mm-hmm. So they would not have had the capacity to respond that far out um, at sea anyway. So I think um, this kind of communication is important. We hope that it can be um, stepped up. And we do we do appreciate that there have been responses, um, at least, um, you know, from, from the government and uh, some ex- expressions of concern, um, recognizing the limitations that they have now. And we really do hope that we can work with the government to try to overcome some of those limitations um, for the future. Mm. And to round up our discussion today, Lillian, what would you like to see now in the immediate term from the government with regards to this case? Because earlier you mentioned the, the medium and long term um, items that you'd like to see, right? But in the immediate term, you know, what, what would you like to see? Well, what we'd really like to see is um, some confirmation on where this boat is. We have heard that uh, it's probably been assisted in some form and that it is uh, quite possibly in a different location than it was over the weekend. So that's what we've heard in the last 24 hours. We are still waiting for confirmation on um, exactly where it is and you know who it was who it was assisted by. That information may not um, you know come very quickly, but we do hope that we'll continue to, to see calls for rescue. Um, and you know, um, governments working together to find solutions uh, to this to this crisis. And really, ultimately, um, we don't want to see people dying at sea. I mean, these are you know really uh, desperate people. We would like to see this uh, um, the value of lives, you know, of human beings be equal, no matter who people are, whether you're a refugee uh, or a citizen of a country of a safe country um, or somebody fleeing from conflict. Um, and you know, uh, as a humanitarian, we'd really like to see more um, priority also being given to these people because they're so vulnerable. Um, So we are hoping that, uh, you know, in the next um, 24 hours or 48 hours that we will see some kind of assistance being given by 
countries in the region um, and really, you know, helping um, working together to actually identify exactly where this boat is. And, um, you know, wherever, whichever waters this boat ends up in, whosever territory it's closest to, some solution has to be found. So uh, we hope that um, there will be efforts uh, among countries in the region to uh, respond to this quickly. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lillian. Most welcome, Suzanne. Thank you. I've been speaking to Lilian Fan, chair of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network's Rohingya Working Group, and she is also the co-founder and international director of the Catanio Foundation. And we've been talking about the recent distressing reports of what um, of a boat carrying Rohingya refugees that is still stranded out at sea. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcasts on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan, and this has been Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. On the show with me today is Lillian Fan, Chair of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network's Rohingya Working Group. She's also the co-founder and international director of the Catania Foundation, which works with refugees and marginalised groups. She's joining me today to discuss reports that have emerged of Rohingya refugees left stranded on a boat out at sea. And um, before the break, you know, um, Lillian was sharing a bit about the um, conditions on the boat on based on what she's heard from relatives of passengers who are on the boat. There are concerns that they've run out of food, that their engine has broken down and that there are already deaths um, that have happened among this particular group. Now, in this case, Lillian, both Malaysia and Thailand have been called upon by activists and organisations like yourself, like Amnesty International Malaysia, to conduct a search and rescue mission. But what responsibilities do neighbouring countries like us have when it comes to such situations? And this is taking, and, and I'm also taking into account that both Malaysia and Thailand are not signatories to the UN Refugee Convention. And unfortunately, both Malaysia and Thailand have had a history of pushing back boats. What responsibilities do we have in a situation like this? Uh, yes, yeah, so I think that we need to look also beyond the Refugee Convention. So I think if we look at um, you know the international law of the sea, uh, there is actually an obligation to rescue and assist boats that are in distress no matter who those passengers are. And I think we need to be applying um, these laws, actually, and the obligation to um, at least conduct rescue uh, rescue mission, identify where people um, uh, are and try to assist them. The difficulty, of course, is I think with these um, uh, our regional governments is that nobody wants to disembark this boat. Um, you know, we are all very concerned, I think, at the uh, national level um, in our countries because Malaysian government, as you said, uh, rightly hasn't signed the Refugee Convention. We mm -hmm. don't even have a domestic framework that actually allows for, um, you know, status determination or recognition of refugees legally yet. We're, mm -hmm. we're hoping that this is going to um, be something that we could see be formulated uh, during this um, this government. But that's not a, a process that is going to you know, happen overnight. It's something which takes a lot of deliberation. Um, for it to be a sustainable policy um, as well that is supported by um, uh, by all stakeholders. So that's a long-term, um, or medium-term rather, uh, step that needs to be taken. Um, but uh, in the absence of that, you know, we do think that it's still important now, even without having those frameworks in place, for the countries in the region, especially, you know, right now, the, the latest coordinates that we had for the boat um, over the weekend were, uh, it was actually in the middle of the Andaman Sea, 
in Malaysian search and rescue waters, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, region, the uh, Malaysian search and rescue region, not in Malaysian waters, not in the territorial waters. Um, and that region was actually quite close also to the Indian uh, search and rescue region and the Myanmar search and rescue region. And of course, um, further to the east, the Thai search and rescue region. So actually what you need is um, joint coordinated operations for search and rescue. Um, and really what the region needs is to um, come to some regional agreements of identifying safe disembarkation locations and procedures of how you actually manage these types of situations. We did have, in fact, some agreements um, at the regional level that took place uh, after the Underman Sea crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of those mechanisms have been activated. So there's something called the Bali process. Um, and that is, uh, you know, the Bali process um, was actually a mechanism uh, and it's a forum uh, from for many governments in the region, not just ASEAN, but actually beyond ASEAN uh, as well, to uh, collaborate and coordinate on efforts um, basically against smuggling and trafficking. And in that mechanism, there was basically an agreement to um, develop a kind of procedure in, in, in the event that uh, this sort of emergency at sea would happen and that there could be... Um, a consultation process that could have, could be activated uh, amongst these countries to um, basically formulate a quick response. That mechanism hasn't been activated, and this is we've seen this over and over again uh, for a couple of years. That when a crisis of this scale does emerge, countries haven't used that mm-hmm. mechanism. So we would like to urge number one for the existing mechanisms to be used. Number two for however the countries feel that it's more appropriate, you know, but really do um, bring. Uh, this issue into a regional discussion where we're really um, discussing roles and responsibilities across countries, because of course, no one country wants to um, be fully responsible uh, uh, for this. And it is difficult when we don't have the frameworks. But again, I think we can't um, let countries off the hook either for basically not abiding to very basic international law. Um, And this is why we're really calling for search and rescue to be conducted, not just because people um, on the boat are Rohingya refugees, uh, that's an added reason to be concerned because of the level of vulnerability, but imagine if this were a boat carrying citizens of a country, people who were actually citizens of a country, you know, recognized citizens, there would be a massive international um, search and rescue mission. So I think we really need to um, ensure that international customary law is um, adhered to without discrimination. So that's really one of the things that is is extremely important um, in the way that we are approaching this these types of crises in the region. Mm. Lillian, you mentioned safe disembark- disembarkation. Is that sort of referring to the need to provide them with a safe haven instead of de- um, detaining them, which is um, quite often the case when it comes to rescuing refugees from, um, from boats? Uh, so there are different approaches in the region actually. And in Malaysia, because we don't have a legal framework that actually allows for um, the protection of refugees and puts that into into law, um, our response has been to basically use the Immigration Act Mm -hmm. to process people. So whether people are arriving, you know, claiming some kind of asylum or not, we don't have those mechanisms yet. We don't have um, a way to actually process, screen, um, you know, do identification of who is in need of protection and who is not. So we really do need to develop those protections. But until we have those mechanisms, um, we are basically using the Immigration Act. And that means that um, people who are extremely vulnerable, who have been, um, you know, number one, survivors of genocide, number two, survivors of um, 
you know, these uh, smuggling and trafficking uh, journeys um, and a lot of violence along, uh, you know, along the way from inside Myanmar to Bangladesh uh, to the sea journey itself are not being treated with the types of um, concern and protection that they need. Instead, we're actually criminalizing them rather than, you know, only really criminalizing the genocides as well as the, um, you know, the traffickers. Uh, who are responsible for, uh, you know, luring people into this type of dangerous journeys as well. Um, so I think we really need to be much better at that. Um, but it's not the only type of response we're seeing in the region. I mean, I think we need to look next door to Indonesia mm-hmm. as well, where Indonesia also hasn't signed the Refugee Convention and uh, doesn't have a comprehensive uh, national law on refugees. But what they have done is they have um, issued a presidential regulation and this was back in 2016, which is presidential regulation um, number 125, 2016. And this is um, a regulation which actually allows for a safe disembarkation of refugee boats uh, that are in distress. Um, and it uses the definition of refugees, which is found in the Refugee Convention. So even not having signed the convention, they're still using that same definition. You know, we're not, they're not making up their own definition of who is a refugee, which is really important as well, because there, um, there is international law behind this. Um, and they are basically uh, conducting coordination between government agencies uh, in Indonesia, from the national level to the subnational level, as well as coordination with the United Nations, with UNHCR and IOM in particular, um, and with um, civil society, humanitarian, um, local humanitarian organizations who are responding as well. And that is um, now, um, you know, a mechanism which uh, Indonesia has been developing. It still uh, has, um, you know, to be developed more. Um, it's not a, a perfect kind of solution, but I think it, it points to an alternative type of approach. Um, they've also gotten rid of detention, mm-hmm. um, you know, of uh, uh, refugees, particularly children. So they don't detain um uh, you know, children. And in fact, they actually tend to put people into community shelters. So it's not really a form of detention. They don't give um, absolute, you know, uh, freedom of movement either. And there are still lots of um, a long way to go when it comes to access to um, livelihoods, uh, for example, and um, of course, education. But in principle, um, you know, they're really trying to work on some of these issues. And I think that it is um, a good example for us to, to look at in the region. Similarly, Thailand um, actually has a screening mechanism um, as well for particularly for victims of trafficking, but it can also be applied to refugees. And that's something as well, which we could learn from our other neighbor from Thailand um, to look at developing our own screening mechanisms, which, mechanisms which could help us to identify persons who are in need of protection. Hmm. Lillian, this is a field that you're very familiar with. From your experience working with refugees and in this field, why is this such still such a contentious issue for um, quite a lot of Southeast Asian governments when we do have a significant portion of society who understand why the, why the, the Rohingya people are fleeing Myanmar when we have quite a strong network of civil society organizations who are advocating for this issue? Why, why do we still struggle to properly address this? Um, I would say that in Malaysia, there are a few concerns and, we, and we've heard this from the government um, as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are, I think, increasing views as well that um, refugees do need to be given more rights. So I would give that to the government. We've heard from all sides, actually, and, you know, in a very bipartisan kind of way, um, support uh, for, you know, in- increasing basic rights for refugees. So that is something which is important to note. 
Um, however, I think a lot of the fear is basically coming from, um, number one, a fear that we will become a pull factor. That is, uh, you know, the kind of overriding fear that um, the Malaysian government has. And I think that this is something which we really need to be um, working to um, address uh, with the Malaysian government, because, you know, the reality is that um, for refugees, it's really not a pull factor so much as it is a push factor. Mm-hmm. It's always a push factor. And I think we should be able to see this from, um, you know, from, from several things. I mean, number one, uh, we're a country which uh, actually, you know, we've given a lot of solidarity support to Palestine, for example. Um, you know, we um, are a country that uh, doesn't require, you know, where uh, many Muslim countries don't require visas. Um, and yet, in fact, uh, you know, the numbers of refugees here in Malaysia, I would say, you know, we try to, I think we sometimes blow it out of proportion, but in fact, it's really not that large. Mm. You know, the number of registered refugees is uh, slightly less than 200,000. Uh, there are, of course, unregistered refugees as well, but it's not as if, you know, we're really, um, you know, uh, having these sort of massive influxes of, of refugees from um, any of these conflict regions, uh, in fact, I mean, of course, our largest population is from Myanmar. But even then, um, you know, it's not really like people are coming here with a completely unmanageable at a completely unmanageable scale. Mm-hmm. So if we did have some frameworks in place, and of course, if we put that screening mechanism in place, that is really what allows you to identify persons who genuinely are in need of protection from those who are not, who um, you know may have um, a much lesser degree of protection needs and could be considered an economic migrant. For example, those are important distinctions to make. Um, And by all means, the government, of course, um, does need to um, be able to make those distinctions. But um, there are tools that they could be using for that. So I think, um, you know, being able to have those conversations with government to address really what their fears are and actually help them find um, solutions to that, help them find ways of um, addressing some of those fears and putting in place, uh, you know, mechanisms that can that can help to reduce that and at the same time uh, allow us to be kinder, um, more humane, um, and, uh, you know, a place where um, refugees who are, are fleeing persecution um, from many countries in the region, actually, and, and across the world um, do actually have some basic rights. Do you see a role for the government to play when it comes to messaging to the public? Because that's always a main challenge for us when it comes to talking about refugees and refugee rights in Malaysia. We inevitably get xenophobic, xenophobic comments from the public, right? Is that something that you can that you see greater top-down messaging for? Yes, I, th- I definitely do. I think it's really important that the government, um, you know, is quite clear and, you know, doesn't sort of um, contribute to fears um, and politicians shouldn't, you know, be contributing to those fears as well. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, stoking up fears and sort of painting refugees as a threat somehow, I really do hope that we are starting to look at, um, uh, you know, uh, these communities as persons, number one, who are vulnerable, who need protection, but also number two, who can actually contribute, you know, in the temporary periods in which they are here seeking our protection there are ways that we can um, support them to be some more self-reliant and also ways that we can encourage them to um, be empowered to contribute back to society. And that's really what refugees want uh, as well. Um, So, I mean, there've been a few encouraging signs. Uh, I think just yesterday, you know, we had the human rights forum Mm -hmm. by the government and there were some good statements that were made. Our foreign minister made a statement that um, Palestine and the Rohingya issue will be still very high on the agenda. Uh, That points to, of course, um, you know, that our foreign policy 
will be quite consistent with foreign policy um, of the past, which has taken these issues up um, at an international level. And that is very important because ultimately you need to be solving the crises. You know, the, the problem with um, the refugee problem is not a problem of refugees. It's a problem of conflict and war. Mm. Um, and that's actually what you need to be solving at the international scale. So we do need to be playing our role um, in ensuring that we are really addressing those issues and really pushing hard um, uh, to uh, find resolutions to those problems. Um, and then number two, you know, we had the, the royal address yesterday uh, by Tranquil Mufiz um, at the forum also, what also pointed to the need to review um, our approach to refugee education and grant refugees more access to education. Um, and, and also called for greater um, cooperation between the government and uh, civil society organizations who have so far been providing these services and filling those gaps. And that was a, a very welcome call. Um, and I think we need to see more of this, you know, leaders and rulers of the country um, really, you know, setting the tone and um, ensuring that we are being inclusive. And when we're talking, of course, about, you know, um, supporting um, Malaysia uh, and, you know, trying to address the uh, inequities in Malaysia and looking at um, how we can basically, you know, make life more sustainable for everyone. We need to be doing this in an inclusive way. And that includes all groups who are vulnerable and marginalized, including refugees. So it has to become part of our conversations on inclusiveness and on how we're going forward as a country. Hmm. Have you heard back from the government, um, from the relevant ministries when it comes to, in, with this, in, in, with reference to this particular case of the boat um, adrift at sea? We have actually. I mean, the government has been, um, you know, quite responsive, um, at least in terms of, you know, uh, uh, getting back to us and telling us what they're hearing as well. The fact mm -hmm. that they, they were um, cooperating uh, with the ties and um, part of the reason that, you know, we didn't sort of launch into um, a search and rescue uh, mission immediately was also because uh, we were told by the Thai government that the, that the Thais would be um, looking for the boat as well. Uh, we did hear since then that the Thais did try to find the boat but didn't find the boat. Mm -hmm. So that was, of course, a concern, and we informed the government of that too. So they have been communicative. I mean, of course, you know, we um, realise that the government also has its limitations in, in what it's allowed to do. Um, the MMEA also um, has been responding, and they made a statement, which actually was correct. They stated that there are no Rohingya boats in our territory. It's That's actually correct, but it doesn't contradict the fact that the boat was actually in Malaysian Saar region, which is different from our territorial waters. And of course, the MMEA's um, territory and mandate is, is within the territorial waters, much closer to the coast. Mm -hmm. So they would not have had the capacity to respond that far out um, at sea anyway. So I think um, this kind of communication is important. We hope that it can be um, stepped up. And we do we do appreciate that there have been responses, um, at least, um, you know, from, from the government and uh, some ex expressions of concern, um, recognizing the limitations that they have now. And we really do hope that we can work with the government to try to overcome some of those limitations um, for the future. Mm. And to round up our discussion today, Lillian, what would you like to see now in the immediate term from the government with regards to this case? Because earlier you mentioned the, the medium and long term um, items that you'd like to see, right? But in the immediate term, you know, what, what would you like to see? Well, what we'd really like to see is um, some confirmation on where this boat is. We have heard that uh, it's probably been assisted in some form and that it is uh, quite possibly in a different location than it was over the weekend. So that's what we've heard in the last 24 hours. We are still waiting for confirmation 
on um, exactly where it is and you know who it was who it was assisted by. That information may not um, you know come very quickly, but we do hope that we'll continue to, to see calls for rescue um, and you know um, governments working together to find solutions uh, to this to this crisis. And really, ultimately, um, we don't want to see people dying at sea. I mean, these are you know really. Uh, desperate people, we would like to see this, uh, um, the value of lives, you know, of human beings be equal, no matter who people are, whether you're a refugee uh, or a citizen of a country, of a safe country, um, or somebody fleeing from conflict. Um, and, you know, uh, as a humanitarian, we'd really like to see more um, priority also being given to these people because they're so vulnerable. Um, so we are hoping that, uh, you know, in the next um, 24 hours or 48 hours, that we will see some kind of assistance being given by countries in the region um, and really, you know, helping um, working together to actually identify exactly where this boat is and, um, you know, wherever, whichever waters this boat ends up in, whosever territory it's closest to, some solution has to be found. So uh, we hope that um, there will be efforts uh, among countries in the region to uh, respond to this country. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lilian. Most welcome, Suzanne. Thank you. I've been speaking to Lilian Fan, chair of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network's Rohingya Working Group, and she is also the co-founder and international director of the Catanio Foundation. And we've been talking about the recent distressing reports of what um, of a boat carrying Rohingya refugees that is still stranded out at sea. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcasts on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.